Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And that's what we've seen so far in the story. And so Israel has seen God's work to save them. But now they must learn to trust God's work to keep them. We're kind of at the second part of the story, maybe even a little bit of an interlude where Israel is having to learn what it means to walk with this God, this Lord, this Yahweh, as uh, Exodus calls him. And so they've seen his work to save them, but now they must learn to trust his work to keep them. And as we have seen and as we're going to continue to see, that will prove very, very difficult. So let's give attention to God's word. Exodus 17, I'm going to focus on verses 1 through 7 this morning. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. God in heaven, would you have mercy on us as we read this your word, as we give our attention to it? God, we pray that you would open our eyes. Uh, We've already heard once this morning from Psalm 95 that that references this very passage that we are prone to be like these, our forefathers. We are prone to hardness of heart and unbelief. And so, God, we need you to step in. We need you to to open up our eyes and to have us come to you in faith. Lord, help us to see and to hear and believe what your word tells us. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. This is, uh, uh, this is not the first time, if you've been with us, this is not the first time that, that Israel has faced this problem. Um, this, idea, this, this problem of learning to trust the Lord. And hopefully, even as we read this passage, you begin to put yourself in the place of these people. Uh, maybe you can, hopefully, you can be honest enough with yourself to realize that when they complain and when they quarrel, we too are just like them. So we're going we're gonna to look at this episode under three different headings. First, we're going to see that this is a divine setup. Then we're going to talk about an angry dispute. And then finally, 
we're going to talk about the rock that satisfies. A divine setup, an angry dispute, and the rock that satisfies. First, let's talk about this divine setup. What do I, what do I mean by that? I don't know if you caught it there in verse 1. It says all the congregation moved on really through the wilderness of sin. Sin is the name of where they are. It's not something they're doing, right? Uh, It's just the name of their place, the the wilderness. They're moving through the wilderness uh, by stages. And so the the language there indicates kind of um, journeying from place to place. I want you to envision because they're they're intense. Right. Because they're real campers. They don't have a camper. They're intense. And so, right, they're pulling up stakes and putting them down. This is a repeated. They're they're moving on through the wilderness, picking up stakes, putting them down, picking up stakes, putting them down. Right. And they're doing this at the command of the Lord. Literally, if you're going to translate this literally from Hebrew upon the Lord's mouth. Right. So what that means is this, they're doing, they're going exactly where they're told to. They're not, they're not wandering aimlessly. They're not confused, nor are they, nor are they progressing according to some grand plan or strategy. They are, they are moving through the wilderness by stages according to God's command. They're doing exactly what they're told. I mean, this is, this is the best backpacking trip ever because you don't need a map and you don't need a compass. You have this huge, fiery, smoking pillar right in front of you. And you just go wherever it goes. And when it stops, you stop. It can't get any better than that, right? So they're, they're going, they're doing exactly as they're told. Now... Here's the thing about doing as you're told. When you do as you're told, right, you have a certain set of expectations. When I make my bed, I get an allowance. Actually, if that's true in your house, don't tell my children. Okay? Um, some of you get an allowance. Right? Uh, when I work so many hours, I get a paycheck. Right? When we do what we're supposed to do, we generate a certain set of expectations. I expect to receive this. Now, if you're not familiar with the God of the Bible, I just need to tell you right up front that he is not so keen on meeting your expectations. And that's going to help you understand this episode, right? Um, because look, look what happens. They're doing just as they're told. And then we get this. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water to drink. Now, wait just a second. You mean we've come to a place, we've been led to a place where there's no water again. Because this happened back in chapter 15. It wasn't as bad, but they got to a place where a place called Mara, where the water was bitter and they couldn't drink it. And there they complained and Moses made the water sweet. God, through Moses, made the water sweet so they were able to drink it. Now, human expectation-wise, surely you would think, okay, we won't do that again, right? I mean, that. I want you to put yourself in their shoes and, and, and... Deal with it as you deal with your own expectations. Hey, God, I'm just following you. Surely, 
surely we won't end up at another place where we can't drink the water or where there's no water to drink at all. Surely someone's to blame for this. Surely some moron at the head of the line took a right when we should have taken a left. Because there's no way that God would lead us to a place where there's no water. Would he? And that's what I mean when I say that this is a divine setup of sorts. God is not in the business of meeting our expectations. And we're going uh, to see that. We're going to unpack that a little bit. Because we tend to think, often wrongly, that if we do things, particularly for God, in a certain way, then it means that life will play out a certain way. Life will be easy, or life will be trouble-free. This is, this is sort of a religious way of saying, God, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. But here's the thing about the God of the universe. You don't really ever scratch his back. Uh, we looked at this last week from Romans 11, right? Uh, he doesn't need a counselor. He doesn't need anybody's advice. He has a plan, and we don't always get it. But it's good. He doesn't owe anybody anything. No one is his debtor. Or he is no one else's debtor, right? Nobody owes him. Excuse me. He knows no one anything. So you don't really scratch God's back. And so this, this, this kind of agreement we make up in our minds where, okay, well, God, I'm going to live this certain way and you're going to guarantee for me this certain outcome. It doesn't really work. Um, this isn't to say that there's no benefit to being good uh, versus being bad. This isn't to say that there aren't consequences uh, for a holy life or a sinful life. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. It's not to say that living wisely isn't better. It is than living foolishly. But it does mean this. We cannot use wise, holy living as leverage against God when he doesn't meet our expectations. And we do that all the time, right? And that's what Israel wants to do right here. Hey, Lord, I'm just following you. How did we end up, with, how did we end up thirsty again? Right? Um, this is, so, so this idea of gaining leverage against God was illustrated perfectly for us a few weeks ago. My friend Jeff came and he preached a sermon on grace alone. And he used this parable uh, from Luke uh, chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. This story that Jesus tells about two men who approach God in prayer. A Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee comes before God and he prays like this. Lord, thank you so much for, for making me better than other people. I'm so glad I'm not, I'm not sinful or adulterous or greedy or that I'm even like that tax collector over there. I tithe a certain percentage of all I get. You know, I'm, God, thank you for making me so good. Right? That's one way to approach God. And it is the way of assuming that my way of life gains leverage against God. That, that God... Uh, if we were to extrapolate that all the way through, that God is obliged to meet my expectations because of the way that I have lived. Now, the better approach is the approach of the tax collector who, who, who doesn't even want to get close to the altar. He stands at a distance 
He won't lift his eyes up to heaven. In fact, he beats his chest. And all he can pray is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the approach that understands grace. Not, not this guy over here, but this guy over here. So the reason, the reason I bring all of this up, the reason that God doesn't meet my expectations, in fact, it's the reason he's doing it right here, is because what I want for my life, my expectations, what I think God maybe owes me, are not nearly as good as what God wants for me. And so God puts us, puts them, puts us in these situations, right? This, uh, this test. This is what he says in Psalm 95. It's what Tim read for us. This is this, uh, this decision point, a test, a trial. And that's what a test is, right? A te- you give someone a test if you want them to prove something. Right? When I give an exam, to, I just gave an exam this past week to my Jeff State students, uh, and the expectation, obviously, is that they will show me what they know. That's what a test is. It's a proving. So why does God test us? Why does God test his people? It's not to prove anything to him. Right? When, I, when I test my students at Jeff State, it's because I don't know what they know. I need to see what they know. That is not why God puts his people to the test. That is not why God tries his people. He knows exactly what's in us. Right? Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight. God puts us in a trial so that we may see what's in ourselves. God uses trials so that we would be able to peer better into our hearts. See, we're prone to think that really we, some of us think we know ourselves a lot better than we really do. And we forget that God knows us much better than we know ourselves. Pete Scazzaro, a pastor in New York, he calls this the wall. And he says, he says that at several points in the Christian life, God brings you to the wall. And the question is, and it happens for everybody who wants to follow Jesus, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to hit a wall several times. This is what Israel hits right here. They hit a wall. And the question is, are you going to stick? Right? Are you going to, are you going to lean into that uh, and see how God is going to grow you through that? Or are you going to fly? Are you going to, are you going to back off? Are you going to run? God uses this. He's using this right now so that Israel will know what is in them. Are they going to trust God? Are they, they've been thirsty before. So how are they going to respond to being thirsty now? Last time they complained. What are they going to do this time? Will they move towards the Lord in trust or will they do something else? Will they react out of unbelief? That's, that's what God is doing right here in leading his people right to this point of no water. Because he is opening up their hearts before them so that they can see uh, what it is that lies within their hearts. And how do they respond? This is where we get to the angry dispute. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. <clears throat> that word quarrel is a really strong word. Um, it actually means like a, like a legal dispute. 
Okay, so later on in the prophets, God is going to use the same word with his own people. And he says, I have a I have a lawsuit to prosecute against you. Right. So what this means is that the people have gone from just murmuring and complaining. They've now graduated to outright. Right. The whole congregation, the whole assembly. There's, this isn't just some vocal minority because every organization has those people who just are never happy with anything. Right. No, this is the whole assembly. And we've gone from murmuring and complaining about Moses to just outright saying, Moses, you got to do something or as Moses says, I think they're going to stone me, right? So they are outright challenging Moses now. They've graduated to, to almost a full-on lawsuit against Moses. I mean, you can hear the anger in their words. Give us water to drink. And I don't know what they hoped Moses would do about it. Um, I guess they saw Moses... You know, they'd seen the miracles that God had done through Moses earlier. So maybe that's what they're asking for. But you can hear the anger in their words. Give us water to drink. And then Moses says this. Why do you quarrel? Why do you contend with me? Why do you test the Lord? So those are parallel statements. Quarreling with Moses is the same as testing the Lord. By by putting Moses on trial, they are actually putting God on trial because Moses is God's representative. In putting Moses on trial, they are actually trying to test the Lord. They're trying to try the Lord. Now, we already said that word to try, to test, means to, to prove something, to prove whether something is true or not. And it can be positive, like uh, in the book of First Samuel, David tries, tests Saul's armor to see if it works. God tests Abraham in Genesis. And God even invites testing sometimes himself. Um, in the book of Malachi, we talked about this in, in Sunday school. Uh, in Malachi 3.10, God invites his people to prove him by actually giving to him. Right? And what a, what a great... What a great example or illustration of what it means to positively prove the Lord. This is what happens in Malachi. Um, God charges the people in Malachi's day with robbery. He says, you guys aren't tithing. Uh, that's the reason why you're hungry. You're, you're not tithing. You're robbing God of what is rightfully his. And then he says this in Malachi 3.10, prove me in this. Bring your tithe into the storehouse and see if I won't bring the rain. See if I won't cause your crops to grow. Prove me. So there's a positive testing of the Lord. There's a way to do it. in a, you, can, you can prove the Lord in faith. But that is not what they are doing here. They are aiming to test the Lord not, not out of trust, but out of unbelief. They do not have faith. They lack it. Look in verse 3. <clears throat> the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children? We've always got to bring children in it because that makes it a good emotional plea, right? Why did you did you bring us out here to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
Now, is that why God had brought them out into the wilderness? That's right. No. Hey, we like we like feedback, you know? Um, no. Of course not. In fact, he had promised right the opposite. Let's go back to Exodus 3. Go back to Exodus 3. Verses 7 and 8. This is where God approaches Moses, calls to Moses in the burning bush, and here's the promise he makes. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. So he hasn't even gotten them out of slavery yet. They're in slavery right now at this moment. He's talking to Moses and telling him, here's what I promised to do. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry Because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And don't miss this to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God had promised to bring them to the promised land. He had promised them a home, a better place. He had made that promise. He reiterates that promise through Moses later. He had actually already made that promise 400 years before to Abraham. God had, God had made his intentions known. It's not like the people were going through the wilderness like, oh man, what do we do next? No, they knew what their destination was. It had been made clear to them. And so when they look at Moses and they say, Did you just bring us out here to kill us with thirst? You can't get any more unbelieving than that. They are looking at God's promise and they are saying they're not insulting Moses. They are insulting God. They are challenging God's character and God's integrity. They're saying, nope, God's not going to do it. He's not going to get us to the broad land. He's not going to take us to a place flowing with milk and honey. See, we're thirsty. It must mean God's no good. It must mean God's not here. That's what they say in verse 7, right? That's, a, that's at the end. That's, that's the question that is, uh, that is burning in their hearts. Is God among us or not? Just, uh, just so you get an idea of how insulting and challenging a question uh, this, or this heart, uh, this heart set is, this is, uh, this is what Doug Stewart, a commentator, this is what he likens it to. This would be akin to uh, asking a marathoner in the middle of the race, hey, sir, do you intend to run this race or not? <laughs> this, is, this is the same as looking at a mother who is working hard in the kitchen to provide the family meal and saying, hey, are we going to get dinner or not? Right? That's what, that's what they're doing to Yahweh. And that's what we do. We have the same problem. We don't trust His good promises. Or at least we don't, we don't trust that He's going to keep them. I mean, sure, they sound nice. But at the end of the day, I need something a little more tangible. I need something a little more here and now. I can't... I can't wait for the promised land. I'm thirsty now. And rather than approaching in faith and saying, so this is, this is, what, this is what we try to do with, uh, with our kids, right? Um, we, we ask the question, what would, be a, what would have been a better way to handle that situation, right? Um, 
What would have what would have what would faith have looked like in this situation? Maybe it would have looked like coming to Moses and saying, "Hey, we know that God is good. We have seen. Look, we saw ten plagues that devastated Egypt. We saw the Passover that brought us out of Egypt. We saw we saw the Red Sea. Hey, by the way, this is the fourth time that they have complained against God. The first time was at the Red Sea when." They were trapped between the sea and, and uh, Pharaoh's army, Egypt's army. And they looked then at Moses and said, Were there enough, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to kill us? So this is common, right? This is not the first time we've resorted to this insult, right? And what does God do? He provides a way, he opens a way through the sea where there was no way before. And then he crushes Pharaoh's army under that same sea. So they, they sing... They, like the best praise and worship session ever in Exodus 15, right next to the shores of the Red Sea. Uh, they get about a day away, a couple of days away from that, and they get to Mara, where the water's bitter. And what do they do? They complain. I mean, sure, God just drowned all my enemies in the sea, but I bet he can't provide water. Right? Uh, then, right, and, and God provides water. So he sweetens the water at that point. A few days later, they're hungry. Understandably so. You're in the wilderness. There's not a lot of good farmland, right? So it, it says that their livestock are hungry, their kids are hungry, and what do they do? They grumble. They murmur. Man, can you guys remember how good Egypt was? I mean, we had, we had all the bread and meat. We just, we just sat by the meat pot and just pulled, pulled food out the whole time we were there. Wasn't that great? What in the world have we done? Why are we out here, Right? And so they complain, and, and God, what does he do? He literally rains bread on them from heaven. They don't even know what to call it, so they call it, what is it, which is manna, right? That's what manna means, what is it? Because they don't have a name for that. Do you? Right, bread from heaven that appears every morning. And, and you get a double portion on Friday so that you don't have to gather it on the Sabbath, right? But God rains bread from heaven, and then he provides meat in quail just out of nowhere, comes on their camp at night, right? So here's what's really interesting about this situation. They would have eaten manna that day. They would have had this, this bread from heaven would have rained on them that day. And how do they approach Moses? <laughs> You're trying to kill us. You don't have any water for us here, right? And we do the same. Our heart, uh, our heart is the same. And so this... This angry dispute reveals a heart that is unwilling to trust God, even in the midst of dire circumstances. Listen, let's, let's not negate thirst or the importance of water, okay? Um, I, know there's, I know there are snicker commercials that, that joke about what, you, what you're like when you're hungry, okay? But, I mean, let's not, let's not negate the real, uh, the real threat of hunger and thirst. Um, when you're without water... In a waterless place, that sense of panic, especially when you see it on the eyes of your children, okay, that's real. And so we don't want to negate that. But having seen what they had seen, having seen what you've seen, what would have been, how would faith have approached this? I know that God is good. 
We have seen him provide in all of these ways. He devastated our enemies. He provides sweet water instead of bitter. Uh, he, he rained bread from heaven. This morning we got, we got food from nowhere that we didn't have to do anything for. So Moses, do you think there's some water some, here somewhere? But they don't do that, right? Because they're, they're stuck in unbelief. So we need to ask them, what does God do in the face of... Of such unbelief, he keeps his promises anyway. He doesn't act like you and I probably would act, right? Uh, God proves himself good anyway. He keeps his promises anyway. Look at verses 4 and 5. Moses cries out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. So things have gotten pretty intense. Moses, stoning, by the way, was really common in the ancient world. If someone was perceived as a threat to the community, then if they broke the community's laws or they were a threat to the community, you executed them by stoning. That's what's about to happen to Moses. I don't think some commentators think that Moses is kind of blowing this out of proportion. Whether he is or not, who knows? Um, Moses obviously is very afraid of what's about to happen to him. And here's what the Lord says in verse 5. Pass on before the people, literally go in front of them. Hey, those people who you think are about to stone you, throw rocks at you, walk in front of them, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. They're going to be your witnesses of what I'm about to do. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now, Moses had done some pretty amazing things with the staff, right? It had been there for, it was, it was the source of, for most of the plagues, it had parted the Red Sea. So it's interesting that the one miracle that, uh, that Yahweh points Moses to is he says, I want you to take the staff that, that you struck the Nile with. That same staff, right, because what the first plague was when Moses struck the Nile, it turned it all to blood, that and all of its tributaries. And so it made the people of Egypt thirsty. They were without water. So God says to Moses, I want you to take the staff, the same staff that you used to take away water from the Egyptians, I will now use to give water to the Israelites. That same staff, take that with you. And look at verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike on the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God says, I'm going to stand on the rock. Now, we don't know if that meant... Um, that the pillar of fire came to rest on top of the rock. Uh, we don't know exactly what these, this looked like, but God is very clear that his presence is there on the rock. He puts himself in some way on the rock, and then he tells Moses to strike that rock. And when Moses strikes the rock, it will yield life-giving water. Let's put all this together. If the Lord is on the rock and Moses is commanded to strike the rock, then he is being told to strike the Lord. And when the Lord is struck, he gives life to his people. You could not have a clearer picture of what Jesus comes to do. God's people are in need. They are in rebellion. 
The Lord positions himself on the rock and then is struck. And when he is struck, life pours out of him. Friends, that is the gospel. And if you think I'm making this up, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is talking to the believers in Corinth who are dealing with lots of different issues, particularly in this section, he wants to address idolatry, which we're not really addressing. But it is interesting what he says. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 1, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him and the rock was Christ. Paul is saying that when Moses struck the rock, it is analogous to, it is the same as Jesus being struck to provide life for his people. That is the gospel. That is how God responds to our unbelief. He offers his son Jesus fully and freely. Jesus is the rock that satisfies. Now... There's a warning in that, and there's an invitation. And the warning is what Tim read earlier in Psalm 95. This moment, uh, this moment becomes, well, we could say a legend maybe in Israel, certainly a lesson, right? In verse 7 of Exodus 15, it says that uh, they called the place, he called the place Meribah and Massa. Right, this place is forever labeled. That word Meribah means testing. The word, no wait, Meribah means quarreling. Massa means testing. This place is forever labeled by the unrebellion of the people. Right, it will be a constant reminder of how the people responded to God's constant provision for them. Right, it becomes a warning in Psalm 95. Don't act like those people. And then we get to the New Testament. And here in 1 Corinthians 10 and later in Hebrews 3 and 4, it is again used as a warning. Don't be like those people. They saw the great benefits of God. They saw God's miraculous provision by grace every time. And they continued to respond in unbelief. And they were not allowed to enter God's rest. They did not make it into the promised land because they persisted in unbelief. And so the warning of the rock is that if you come to the rock, but do not really trust the rock, if you persist in your unbelief, friend, you will not enter God's rest. So you can come here and you can listen to my words and you can even say, hmm. But if you do, you, so, so you're drinking but you're not drinking with faith, there is danger in that. Which is a good time to segue to the table. Paul says there's danger in the table if you come to it, but you don't come to it in faith. You don't come to it drinking 
You don't come to it believing that Jesus will take care of you, that he is your Lord and that he will provide. There is danger in that. Friend, don't have a hard heart of unbelief. That's the warning. The invitation. Come to the rock that satisfies. Don't continue in unbelieving, murmuring and hostility. Friend, God has proven that he is for you in Jesus. That's what the rock shows us. He is, he is willing. The holy God of creation is willing to be struck so that you will be satisfied. He allows himself to be put to death. He who had never known death and never known sin allows himself to be put to death under the penalty of sin, so that you can go free. He is struck. Come to the rock that satisfies, the only rock that can satisfy, and believe on Him and be saved. Let me invite the elders to come forward and take the cloth off the table as I close in prayer. Father in heaven, we hear the warning of unbelief from Meribah and Massa, and we hear the gracious invitation from the rock that satisfies. Oh, Lord, may we not be a hard-hearted and obstinate people. May we be a people who are freed by your grace to love you and to trust you and believe in you for all that you are and all that you have given. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table, uh, we are doing something that Christians have done uh, ever since the Lord Jesus was, uh, the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, when he took this meal, this Exodus meal, the Passover, and uh, he transformed it into what we know as the Lord's Supper. Because he was the lamb, uh, and there's no lamb on this table, right? But now we have bread, and now we have uh, juice, right? And so the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he broke it. And having given thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks for it. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What do you mean by that, the new covenant? Well, the old covenant was broken. It lay dead on the ground through unbelief. The people were unable to do what the covenant required. And so God sent one who could do what the covenant required. And his name was Jesus. And in fact, when Jesus was tested in the wilderness, he was tested with hunger and with thirst. He fasted for 40 days. He was tested by his enemy, the devil. And you know what he told the devil? He said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus passes the test where you and I fail every time. And because he has done that, he has opened the way of life for you and for me. And so the first way you lay hold of that life is you believe on Jesus. Another way to continue in that is to observe the Lord's Supper. But that means that the table is for those who believe. 
It is for those who have said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. This is one of the means that God's, God provides for that. But it means this, that if you have not yet believed on the Lord, if he is not your Lord and Savior, then don't take from the table. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians that there's danger in that. There's a warning there. These are precious things, sacred things, and we don't want to take them for granted. But this meal is provided for everyone who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus to strengthen us and nourish us, to keep us going. It is the spiritual food and the spiritual drink that God provides. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you take now this bread and this juice, these common things, and would you uh, make them useful for that spiritual purpose that you've intended for them? Would you strengthen your people? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus given for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup. And having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and drink.
new covenant, still by the Lamb, the great Lamb, who we will see one day in the new heavens and the new earth. Take and drink. Let's stand and sing. Receive God's blessing. Don't forget the officer nomination guys on the way out. May the grace of God the Father, may the love of God the Son, 
And may the fellowship of God, the Holy Spirit, be and abide with each one of you. And God's people said, Amen. So,